that's what led to this. And I called Emily thinking like, okay, I get really high on ideas and I get really excited and I'm, I, I ride that wave, baby. And I called Emily and she's sort of like my litmus test. If I call her and she tells me to settle down, I'm like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> then I do. I do what she says because she's always right. But instead she was like, I mean, yeah, this is cool. And then <laughs> it's history ever since, you know? Hi, my name is Denise Wolnakis, and you're listening to the Marielles podcast. Uh, Marielles, because um, we're, we discuss Marielle-related things that make us malales. Um, we In this podcast, we talk about Canadian catastrophes, and on this episode, I am joined by Emily Hewitt. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm so happy. (laughs) I'm really happy to be doing this. I feel like this has been in the making for years unofficially, and I'll explain why. Unofficially, yeah. Unofficially. Because Emily and I have this relationship, she's one of my best friends, where if any of us hear anything weird or interesting, we report back to the other person, and the details are excruciating. There's a lot of details, yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of details and I feel like normal, another guest would just be, another person would be like, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's weird. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> we move on. We're like, well, wait, but like, what happened really? Let's psychoanalyze this and let's unpack this to the best of our abilities. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. And like, it started with, well, it started way earlier, like in high school when we were taught anything, it was like, well, wait a minute, let's, let's break this down. I think you're glazing over history, miss. You know, <laughs> like, just a little bit, a little bit of glazing. Um, one of my favorite was like, what what happened first? Was it the Hindenburg that happened first that I learned about? And then I called you and we like talked about it for like an hour, like boring all of our friends, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was in a in a Zoom call where we were we were celebrating our other friends' achievements, and yeah. it became a and I really hey, let's that talk too. about this. Yeah. <laughs> And so um, I listened to this other podcast that I've told Emily about called The Alarmist. And this is great. This was supposed to be my first episode of this podcast, but they were talking about um, a bridge in West Virginia that collapsed and killed 30-something people. And I called Emily to talk about it. And she alerted me of this, the Quebec Bridge. And we talked about it for a while. And I was like, hold up, we're going to record this because this is my livelihood right here. <laughs> like this. <laughs> Yeah, the Quebec bridges. From what I from what I remember you telling me, this bridge in the states killed thirty people. You said, yeah, yeah. This killed like three times that, and that's what gave us the idea. Well, gave me the idea, and Emily supports my hopes and dreams. Because <laughs> always, always. <laughs> because all of the tragedies I heard in the podcast that Emily and I discussed, we were reminded of recent Quebec tragedies that are more recent. This bridge is older it's the oldest thing we're going to talk about I spoke we're going to talk about this far but um that's what led to this because I think we underestimate how many things happen in, in Quebec and Canada that are like significant enough to talk about and I was under the impression that Canadian history was boring I, I thought it was only like well, that's American. what school teaches you exactly that's what school teaches you it's not we're just taught the boring things Emily is also an engineer that's, she's, but I would like to give my little disclaimer here before we actually start. Yeah. So I did um, what's called building engineering, which is part civil, part environmental. And so as much as I have like a grasp of the understandings of statics and, and structural designs, I'm much more focused on the energy side of things. So like I can explain to you like the statics of it, but I'm by no means, like no means an expert on bridge design and structural design. And that's what we do here on the Marielles podcast. We don't get experts, we get people who sort of know. (laughs) I sort of know how to design a bridge, that's it. (laughs) And that's how we do it. I'm not a historian. Um, I did all of the research. I actually asked Emily to do as little as possible so we can have like a (laughs) conversation. I'm not a historian. I do a Wikipedia search and I look it up on YouTube and then I follow some of my leads. 
And that's, that's how we do it. If you want, I could refer you to some great historical podcasts. Um, one that I sent Emily earlier called uh, That'll Be the Problem, which are engineers who talk about engineering catastrophes, and they did an, a great episode on this. Um, there are a few little documentaries, because this is a really big deal, what we're talking about, and I didn't know about it until Emily told me about it, and that's been a theme of this podcast. I don't know how, and we'll get into it, but I don't know how these engineers sleep that night knowing it's it's a liability right like it's it's just it's there to remind you that you are liable your designs can can make you liable if god forbid there's a death or a loss of life because of something that you didn't do properly and i was looking at other fields and for science for example any mistakes or accidents are really um, the bridge to scientific discovery. Like so many anecdotes and scientific research was were discovered because of mistakes. And, yeah. and it's a field that encourages mistakes and explorations. The same cannot be said for engineers because engineering failures are catastrophes and and while every failure, and this one included, is a learning opportunity, like in all the other fields, um, things you didn't consider, things um, you didn't factor in, variables that were not present, like it's, 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 it's progress. Nobody died, very few people die in like scientific mistakes. Right. So like if you take the field of medicine, right, there's just, if, if the doctor were to do something and your patient were to suffer, then... I mean, there is a liability, obviously, but it's also just maybe it's beyond the knowledge of the actual doctor, right? There's just no way for them to know. There's no way for them to to be able to affix it. Whereas an engineer, um, your liability is just like you're expected to know everything and you're expected to to create designs that will last the test of time because or else you are more liable. And it's crazy. And in that bridge accident in West Virginia, one of the faults of the, that bridge collapsing is because it was designed for a world where people had horse-drawn carriages. And through, you know, time has passed, suddenly everybody owns a, a car and cars weigh um, so much more than a horse and buggy. And then like you were able, it takes up less space. So therefore there are more cars on the bridge. And that was, that's how can an engineer before cars like plan for a, a, a post-car world? Where I mean, I'm going to jump in and not defend these guys because, I don't know, I'm not going to defend them. But <laughs> I will say that that was, like, beyond the scope of their knowledge, right? Like, they right. could not have understood that. And, like, as much as there's a learning curve in medicine and all these other disciplines, in engineering and in, especially in buildings, there is that too, right? Like, there's, they always say, like, there's always a great tragedy that leads to a building code reform, right? There's a great fire that build that creates this new reform and these new rules and these new codes, right? So for the guys who designed the bridge for the buggies, like they could not have known that cars was coming and would revolutionize the way we live the world, right? So for them, like it's fine. Once we get into it, these guys had absolutely no excuse, like absolutely <laughs> none. And it makes me bad because it's incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was, I was just about to ask you, is this, is this a lack of knowledge, like scope of knowledge, or is it, you know, human incompetence and human error? It's, it's human incompetence because this bridge was designed to be the longest cantilever bridge, but it was designed for cars, for railways, for cyclists, for pedestrians, for trams, like it was designed for this purpose. Mm -hmm. So like you can't hide behind the fact that a horse um, weighs less than a car because you just that was not within your design parameters so <sighs> whatever <laughs> let's get into it so the quebec bridge Pont de quebec is a road rail and pedestrian bridge across the lower saint lawrence river between saint foy and uh levy quebec so it's it's a suburb of quebec city um, before the bridge was built, the only way to travel from the south shore of the St. Lawrence in Levy to the north shore at Quebec City was to take a ferry or use the wintertime ice bridge. This is a segue. Because my grandparents, so my grandparents live um, like after Saint-Foy, like we take a bridge, but we take the other bridge, the Pierre Laporte bridge to go. Um, and I remember like my grandparents telling me when they were younger that they would like get into their horse and they would just like ride across the river to get to the other side because my grandmother was from the other side. And I was like, what? She was like, yeah, I would freeze over and we'd just hop on our horse and just like go across the river. And I, was like, That's, I Googled what an ice bridge was because I was like, I, this, this can't be what I think it is. And 
It's like, literally what you think it is. <laughs> it's so exciting. And do you know, we have one in, in Montreal between Hudson and Oka. And it's only, it used to be, it used to be like um, safe for like months on end, the whole winter months, but because of global warming, usually it's like two, three weeks. And yeah. the ice used to be 30 centimeters deep. And oh my God, this is yeah, such no, a- my, my grandfather, when he would go and meet my grandmother who lived on the other side, he'd just hop in his horse and go over. And he was like, I mean, the ice was like feet deep. Like it was, there was no risk at all. And I was like, now you can't even step on confidently without being like oh i'm gonna i'm just gonna die of like ice rink closed and that's what like what five feet of water and they're like you know what like <laughs> you keep five feet of water frozen but the one between montreal um, hudson and oka uh saves you from an hour detour 80 kilometer detour and so they caught they charge i think eight dollars as um so as a toll for that okay so what, you drive like on your car and you yeah that's yeah so cool and and they were saying that like people are are scared of doing it, but they still yeah. like, it's an hour detour, so whatever. So people drive with like their windows open and the the door open, like checking the ice as they drive really slowly. That's <laughs> like, so funny. Canada's like crazy. Like this is crazy. Like we just I know that that's a reality. That's crazy. <laughs> oh my god. So. Yeah, so the ferry and the ice bridge was the only way to cross this. And as far back as 1852, a project for the bridge over the St. Lawrence River was considered again in 1867, 82, 84. Um, and then there was uh, political instability. In Quebec had four prime minister in five years. And ultimately, it was Wilfrid Laurier who went ahead with the project and made this a reality. And so he was elected in 1896. He put together the Quebec Bridge Company. Um, he didn't put together, I'm sorry, John A. McDonald put together the bridge company, but he was, he associated, he joined the bridge company with the railway company and they were commissioned for this job. Right. Which is, which is where you see that this bridge was not meant for horses and buggies. It was meant for like trains and cars and heavy vehicles. Yeah. And we'll so they have 6 million upfront, which in 1900 is insane. And the project is a go. Edward A. Horse was selected as the chief engineer for the company, while Schreiber was the chief engineer for the railway canals. And Horror had never worked on a cantilever bridge structure longer than 300 feet. Can you explain to me what a cantilever bridge is? Cantilever. Cantilever. <laughs> cantilever bridge. Um, okay, so a cantilever bridge um, is, I'm a visual person, so bear with me here because I know this is a podcast you can't see me but I'm a visual person and I'm doing my best she's using a lot so, of her hands <laughs> I am there's a lot of hand gestures going on but what a cantilever bridge is a cantilever in general right is you're fixed at one end and the other end is suspended right so it kind of creates like a diving board almost right so it's fixed at one end the other end is just free to flop around so a cantilever bridge is basically two cantilevers that are facing each other so the suspended parts are facing each other and then there's this like free part in the middle that connects the two does that make sense yeah that, that really does well but if you can't see my hand gestures does it make sense they could google like google exists like <laughs> <laughs> so a cantilever bridge is basically there's these two posts coming out of the water right and then there's the suspended bridge that is going towards each other, which is the cantilever portions of it. And then to connect the space between the two, there's just this freestanding portion that's not, that's not anchored into the water. It's just kind of, it's on top. It's, it's being carried by the weight distributed evenly on the cantilevers, right? So there's two freestandings, they're not connected, and then there's this new suspended portion that connects the two. Is this a good bridge? Like, would, like when you learned about this bridge, is it, or you, will you weigh the pros and cons per bridge? Is, is this a smart bridge? It, it's typically used for shorter spans. Like it, when this is, I think, what, the Quebec Bridge is like 500 and something meters? Um, yes, it's 1800 feet, which is, we'll get into that, but. Yeah, but what is that in metrics? <laughs> Right. Metrics. I don't I don't do Imperial. <laughs> it's like five hundred and eighty, I think. Yeah, I'm gonna go with that. 
it's something like that that's that's like unheard of especially at that time and it's still unheard of today right it's still the longest cantilever bridge but like what the what a cantilever bridge is usually for is like a pedestrian bridge crossing a pond or something like it, it's very for shorter spans because what a cantilever does is that the longer that that freestanding portion is the less stable it is right the more it can it can rotate above its around its fixed point right okay so okay. this yeah so this is special the special bridge okay um but so, it's not the only one of its type right like i i just want to say like there are many cantilever bridges out there and they were fine but this is just longer than what normally would be allowed so Hor never worked on a type of bridge of this scale. So um, Schreiber, this man, Schreiber was assisted up until July 1903 um, by an engineer named Douglas. But at that time, Douglas was deposed for his opposition to the calculations that were submitted. So right away, um, he's like, I've never done this before. Let me get help. The guy who's assisting him is like, I'm really suspicious of these calculations. So they fired him. And like calculations for any bridge design is like super important, but especially cantilever bridge where like those freestanding parts are dependent on like the fact that you've calculated this freestanding portions weight properly. If that's off, then your the stability of the like diving part, the diving board portions are just like not going to be able to withstand the weight that's being put on them. And I don't know how engineering was even a thing in 1903 because sure there's no calculators there are no softwares there are, there are no i i can't imagine how impossible your job is as an engineer in 1903 i mean like i mean i don't know when the calculators came around but i i would hope that there are calculators there's no softwares that's obvious but like you can do this all by hand and like in school they teach you how to do this by hand but like obviously it's not as exact as what it could be anyways it's yeah so they deposed douglas and schreiber subsequently requested the support of another qualified bridge engineer but it was effectively overruled by the cabinet so then thereafter the only person in charge was this man named theodore cooper he was completely in charge of the works he was the consulting engineer and um, in 1905, Schreiber, Schreiber was demoted and replaced with Deputy Minister and Chief of Engineer Butler. So this guy Cooper comes in from New York and then basically replaces all with his people. But can I just say that if your engineer is like asking you like, is this right? Is this right? That like you know, <laughs> you should you should give him the help, right? Like there's a reason even once you graduate and you're like an engineer, you're not really an engineer. You go through this like two, three years where you're not allowed to sign on any documents or on any figures. Like you have to get the approval of someone who actually knows what they're doing, right? So if the, if the guy is like asking for help, that should be your first red flag of like he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> Ideally, also, it would be a team of people because you can't... Oh, yeah. No. So we have this Cooper. So Cooper is famous. He agrees to the cantilever bridge proposed by the, an American uh, company called Phoenix, um, a design patterned after the fourth bridge in Scotland. So the fourth bridge in Scotland, I initially thought and read it was the fourth bridge built. <laughs> like the number four. <laughs> number four, but no, it's the river's called the River Fourth. And um, before retiring, Cooper wanted the Quebec Bridge to be his crowning achievement. Okay. So how did that work out for him? I also want to make it okay, I guess we'll get there. So before the parts of the bridge superstructure were manufactured, a company company designing engineer Peter L. Splatza <laughs> estimated the weight of the completed work and the Canadian government had hoped to hire its own engineer to review the weight calculation but Cooper objected and the government reluctantly approved the plans without alterations so they just trusted this one guy to weigh the steel to weigh the nickel they were like yeah that's fine nobody checked off on it the Canadian government just agreed it was made of nickel or of steel I'm glad we brought that up that was at the end it's used it's nickel steel in its construction it was the first bridge First bridge in North America to use nickel steel in its construction, a remarkable engineering feat. What are like steel on its own is is made for longer spans. Like it, it's 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 able to withstand that um, that distance. length mm -hmm. um, or that distance. But I don't know how nickel 
I mean, that's interesting. I don't know anything about that, though. It was the first bridge who, who used this. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. So we already went over the cantilever bridge. Here's the, I'm sure all engineers love hearing this, to cut costs. Cooper. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> that's what you want to hear. Oh, great. <laughs> Cooper revises the original design by moving the support, pier, the support piers closer to the shore, making them less expensive than the piers built in the deeper water and shaving an entire year off the construction. Okay, so I have a comment on this. Um, by pushing them closer to the shores, right, you're ultimately making that span, that unsupported span, longer, right? Which, yes, steel can take out, can, can withstand long spans, but only to a certain extent, right? At some point, it's going to bend and it's going to snap, right? Um, it's just not designed for that. And I do appreciate... Um, Another interesting or special thing about this bridge is that the St. Lawrence is like a major commercial channel, right? Like there are boats going through that all the time. So like you have to respect that there will be boats going under and it has to be a certain length and it has to be like the piers have to be at a certain distance from each other. But um, you don't cut costs um, if your material is not going to be able to withstand it and lives are going to be at stake because of it. It's just... That's not the gamble that you make. <laughs> it's crazy. Another thing that infuriated me is he wanted to, like you said it was very long, it's the longest bridge. He wanted to make the bridge 1,800 feet instead of 1,600 feet, so just so he could pass the record because the, the Fort Bridge in Scotland is 1,700 feet. So he, he made it deliberately longer just so he can hold the record. Yeah, but he clearly didn't, see the consequences and not like not consequences as some like bad things but like the cause and consequences of that right like if you're gonna accommodate the bridge to make it longer he made it longer without doing his due diligence right and that's that's no that's not good that's embarrassing like we're gonna make it it just so i could have the record i'm like no this guy who wanted to make the longest bridge so that he could have all the accolades is now forever known as the guy who fucked up the bridge and who is liable and who killed however many people died in this first crumble. And this was his last job before his retirement. So he wanted to make a big show. So close, like he was so close to getting out. But on the construction so he could retire earlier. Like everything was done like, okay, how can I make this as big as possible before my retirement? And like, okay, so we're gonna cut the on quality. We're gonna, you know, and, and time so I could have this on my resume before I retired. So the why do you care if you're about to retire you've had a good career like why do you care I'd like you're oh, anyways it's fine it's just in confidence so, yeah so the workers on the bridge are all from the Ganawage reserve not all of them a good portion and they had an excellent reputation for for construction and it's a very high-risk job so they knew that so in 1907 a traditional job would pay you a dollar a day um, employees of the bridge were getting ten dollars a day, so it was they were paying handsomely, which was nice. I wrote here uh, first red flag, but we we've had previous. There's been many. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a bunch of red flags. In February 1906, Cooper became concerned when he examined the details drawings of the Phoenix Bridge Company and found that the actual weight of the manufactured steel parts estimated the weight that scalpsa or scalpa. I don't know. Prior to manufacturing. <laughs> By then, the south anchor arm and the tower, the two panels of the south cantilever cantilever arms were already, I'm going to mispronounce it the entire time. That's totally fine. <laughs> um, they were already in place and six sections of the anchors were in place and Cooper decided to forge ahead and not introduce any changes. Construction continued because he thought the increased stress would be safe. So um, his weight that was slightly off and he was like, no, it's okay. Let's just keep going. It was 8 million pounds off, all right? <laughs> Can we talk about that? 8 million pounds off, which like, I don't know, it seems like a bit too much, you know? <laughs> like, he, I think in the like very scarce research I did for this, right? It was like, um, I think the, like the actual quote was, it was, it was like 8 million pounds off, but he decided to take the gamble and he, he decided to go ahead anyways. Like when it's 8 million pounds off, and I'm like, granted, these are huge structures. I get it. But 8 million pounds is still like more than like plus or minus 5%, right? 
like you don't just take the gamble <laughs> like it's your material you should know your material is going to is going to fail <laughs> at eight million pounds over he was so arrogant and saying like no my guys got it like when you know there's written records that the, the canadians were like let me send an engineer let's double check those numbers like like fuck off like i'm yeah fuck no <laughs> i built the manhattan bridge yeah ever heard of it <laughs> yeah well <laughs> this one has a slightly different legacy but that's fine <laughs> Okay, second supposed red flag, 1907, June 15th, the alignment of two girders are off by a quarter of an inch. With this time... Which doesn't seem like much, but when you're at those like huge spans, right, a quarter of an inch accumulates so much that I think when they like get to the connecting portion, it was off by like five inches or something. Like there's no way that you can connect those two. And day by day, it was slipping more, the alignment. Like, it wasn't an alignment that was stuck. It was getting worse and worse. So Right, and so remember how I said that, like, a cantilever is basically like a diving board, right? And, like, the longer that the board part of the diving board is, the more it's going to kind of dip down, right? It's going to settle a little bit. There'll be a displacement at the end. So instead of being completely upright, it's going to start to droop. And that's exactly what happened. Or like, if I had to guess, that's exactly what happened, right? Like the longer he made it like 200 feet longer on each side. Yeah. And it just kind of started drooping because there's only a certain length that the, or the steel nickel or the nickel steel can like withstand before drooping. It's cringy. It's cringy. So Norman McClure is the supervisor and Cooper is in New York City because he was old and sick. So he was getting medical and he wasn't even overseeing his job. Um, no. <laughs> so the supervisor kept writing letters to him saying like we're we're getting increasingly concerned by this and the letters either went unrespond to or like defensive like no this was it's all part of the plan so he go decides to go in person to New York to talk to him and show him his drawings or whatever he was going to show him but <laughs> something I, I keep I keep having to remember it's 1907 so how long does it take to get to New York? I'm thinking, oh, he's going to get to New York, whatever. He's going to fly there. It takes two hours. Okay. Okay. It was probably like a five-day journey by horse and carriage. <laughs> like, how far is Quebec City from, from New York? Like, oh, my God. It's, it's long, yeah. If it took, like, three months for the donor party to get from the, the East Coast to the West Coast of the United States, it fully took a few weeks like I'm I'm confident in like a two-week journey from Quebec City down to to New York <laughs> like his life was at risk like this wasn't <laughs> um so one of the mistakes is the while he was away the construction company the overseeing people kept building in the meantime when they should have ceased operation so he gets to Cooper, he tells him, explains to him his concerns. And again, I don't know how long this lasts, but they sent a telegram to the Phoenix Construction Company. I also don't know the logistics of a telegram. <laughs> and I know in the, in the New York City shirtwaist fire tragedy, there was a telegram sent to the floor above that there was a fire. And by, by the time the telegram got there, the whole building had burned down. So again, not the time. Telegrams are not your speedy communication. <laughs> It's not your speediest communications mean. <laughs> so they sent a telegram to stop working immediately. And the person at the Phoenix Bridge Company gets the telegram and goes, nah. I, I don't think he's right. I know better. And I'm not going to tell anybody that. Like, they, they went back and forth saying, like, oh, it, it's off because the steel was already crooked when it came. That's not the problem. And then another telegraph goes. And another telegraph goes back saying, no, stop working. Another telegraph. <laughs> Which, like, is dumb. If your steel is deformed or has, like, failures before for even putting it up, that's even more reason to not <laughs> put it up. Like, if it's already failing, even before you put it in your structure like it's not going to withstand any sort of force right like I don't know what's a bigger problem here arrogance or incompetence like I, it's just it's really bad and the employees would go to work sort of knowing that something was wrong like they felt unsafe they saw all these errors but they were just forced to resume working by every level of their superiors 
Um, so at 5.45 that day, instead of the whistle blowing like Charlie Chaplin style that the workday was over, um, they heard what they thought was an earthquake. And on that same day, while Cooper and the steel company representative are talking, the bridge collapses in under 15 seconds and 75 of the 86 workers were killed, making it the world's, the world's most damaging bridge construction disaster. And there are still some bodies who have never been discovered. So just like that. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's so sad. It's a really turbulent water, the St. Lawrence. It is, it's, yeah. It's, it's deep, it's cold, and it's, it's very turbulent. And, and I think that we forget that the Titanic also crashed in the St. Lawrence, but like closer to like the Maritimes, but it was like no in that area. I'm pretty sure. I mean, fact check that. But like, I'm pretty sure <laughs> that it was it was like on its way into the St. Lawrence that it, it died or it crashed. Yeah, it's a very... It is rough water. It's rough waters. And there are special captains for the St. Lawrence to guide people who, who come in at the one end of it and get off at the other end of it just to assist captains yeah. with the very um, turbulent waters. So that was the, the first bridge that, that collapsed. Who's to blame in, for the first collapse? In my opinion, Cooper. Cooper needs a, a little bit of a reality check here. Yeah. Like, I, I don't understand how, A, you're putting in steel that has been already deformed. Like, it was a manufacturing fault or whatever, whoever's fault it is. That steel shouldn't have gone up in the first place. Like, that's just plain and simple. And then to not check your drawings, to not, like, double-check your calculations, to see that your weight is off by 8 million, or what did I say? 8 million pounds? Yeah, 8, 8 million pounds. pounds. 8 million. 8 million pounds? In that type of bridge, like any sort of weight, that's the weight of the, the part that's like basically suspended in air, right? That's not anchored anyway. Um, if that weight is off, then obviously your diving board portions are going to just fall through, right? If they're not designed to withstand that. Like it's fully, in my opinion, it's fully an engineering fault. Like there's no way that that's um, a construction issue or like a manufacturing issue. It's a design fault that wasn't checked. And his other, he's built several bridges. Is it in this, this fault came at the end of his career. So was it, would you, would you specify it? To, it was his ego at fault and he wanted something too ambitious and without doing his due diligence? Or do you think it, he was incompetent the whole time and the last, his, all his other projects were overseen by other people as well and they were able to have more input and he wasn't the one solely responsible for the bridge all the other times? What, what do you, what do you think? I mean, I think that like there has to be ambitious projects everywhere, right? Or else like nothing's going to move forward at all in the, in the industry. Right. But like to a certain extent, like if you're going to do something, if you're going to build the world's tallest building, you need to do, you need to understand that your foundation needs to be deep enough to withstand the weight of your building. Right. Like there's always something or that it needs to be designed to withstand any sort of horizontal shift. Like if you're going to be ambitious, you need to understand what other what other concepts or factors are going to affect the design of your building, right? Otherwise, otherwise, like no building would ever stand, right? So I think that, I don't know, I don't want to say that I didn't know him. Like, I don't know that he was incompetent his entire career. I think it, he was rushed and just didn't do his, didn't do what now they train you to do in school, which is to double check, triple check, because that's unacceptable. I completely agree with your assessment. So Theodore Cooper's career and reputation ended with this bridge. Um, the Phoenix Bridge Company, however, um, despite its blow to the reputation, lived on for another half century and only stopped, ceased operations in 62, 1962. I don't understand how they're connected. Did he not work for the bridge company? No, he was the art the, he was the engineer he was the consulting engineer and these were the people who like came up with the plans and and suggested the bridge and the materials he was overseeing everything but this was like the actual company like construction company well i mean even today like it's always the last engineer whose stamp is on yeah. the drawings that's going to be liable right so that's why you have like junior engineers or like whatever 
less experienced engineers that always have their stuff approved by people who are considered to be at like the pinnacle of their career and like the know-alls be-alls of, of the industry right so it's always the last person to stamp that's gonna that's gonna be liable and like that's what happened here right but it was also the phoenix bridge company that when cooper realized he made a fatal mistake and sent a telegram to cease work operations they were the ones that were like no it, it's not you don't know what you're talking about it's the steel you're not the one that's here the steel is fine you know they then were at fault because they shouldn't have put um failed steel in like yeah. you you can't i don't know I, yeah. I guess i don't understand their relationship properly enough but like did, so he doesn't work for them no he is um appointed by the canadian government as the his p position was official position was consulting engineer like lead consulting engineer and then over time he absorbed all the other roles that of people who were let go and fired of like upper tier people but this was the company put in place well then I'm they're at fault yeah. for not trusting like as much as he screwed up they should have also trusted him as like the lead person like they should have trusted his judgment yeah, he he didn't make very good judgment calls, but like they're also at fault for not trusting the person that's appointed to oversee everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I still think Cooper is involved, but they they didn't do their part, right? Because in Cooper's absence, they were the senior the seniors on staff, and so all of these red flags, like the steel being in a different shape, and and um, employees complaining and like the alignment being off that because because Cooper's not physically there right but if he's still if he's the lead person he should have approved everything whether he's right or wrong he should have gotten his word should have been final exactly okay so bam 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 ignore that we're making a new bridge <laughs> after Rose, let's try again guys <laughs> let's try again after a royal commission of inquiry into the collapse, construction started on a second bridge. Three engineers were appointed. Votelit, a formal engineer for the Canadian Pacific Railways. The best name I've encountered in this thus far, Maurice Fitzmaurice from Britain, who worked on the Fort Bridge in, uh, in Scotland. And then Ralph Majeski from Chicago. Vodalit was the president and chief engineer and the new design again for the bridge for a single long cavalier plan, but a more massive one. And Saint, the St. Lawrence Bridge Company from Montreal was hired and brought in. So it's, it's a Canadian operation or, and a Great Britain operation. Right. So um, it's a different assembly plan. So this one will be built in three parts. So one of, what did you call them? The anchors of the diving board? What did you call yeah, them? Yeah, like the, the piers, which is like the parts that are actually in the water. And then like the, the cantilever part, which is like the diving board equivalent. Mm -hmm. And then there's that suspended portion that connects the two. So, so those are like assembled yeah. separately. And then just like kind of like Legos put together exactly. is, is what they tried to do. <laughs> exactly. And it's funny, they wanted to put the, the center part, the diving board part, in the water. And like, the, just the words they use, they would sail it downstream. <laughs> it's like lift it up and place it. The Ganawaki Reserve chose not to participate in the building of the second bridge, which I think is a good call. Rightfully so. <laughs> Rightfully so. It's crazy. The construction started in 1913, and eventually the two approach span and the anchor arms and cantilever went up on either side of the river. By 1916, the bridge was nearly complete. All that remained was the job of hoisting the mammoth center span that would connect the two cantilever arms. The right, that's that suspended portion whose weight is very is crucial right because it'll be supported by these freestanding members 5100 tons um okay on the morning of september 11 the workmen faced a difficult task in moving the span upstream but all went well the span was carried on scows that were guided by tugs you know the the, the tugs and the spans <laughs> and the scows Right? I'm like a true construction <laughs> expert. <laughs> Who knows about the, the scows? It was a slow <laughs> process, but eventually the span was maneuvered into position between the cantilever arms, where huge lifting hangers attached to the ends of the arm raised by hydraulic means off the scows. The spans was to be lifted two feet at a time in a repeated operation until it was placed between the two arms. 
After four successful lifts on the north end and five lifts on the south end, the workmen and 80, about 80 and all, took a break. So, coffee break. (laughs) (laughs) They put it there. It was a slow, painful process going how how quick? Two inches? Two feet? At a time. Up, up, up. Was it like water pressure? I don't know what hydraulic means were. Yeah, hydraulic. I mean, I'm not an expert in hydraulics. That's more civil than I can handle, but it's it's yeah it's it's basically like pumping water pumping that's cool water pressure pumping i guess i think while they were right when they came back from their coffee break the center part just collapsed yeah and that central span is still at the bottom of the saint lawrence they've never is it yeah whoa (laughs) i didn't know that the investigation. I guess that's a lot of steel to take out of the river at once, you know? Like it's 5,000 tons? That's a lot of steel to take out of the river. That's a lot, a lot of steel. The investigation by the Board of Engineers determined that the span did not buckle like they, like they claimed. Rather, the loss resulted from the failure of a casting in the erection equipment that temporarily supported the southwest corner of the span. Obviously. <laughs> I so, like, the buckle is the failure, right? Buckle is, like, when they just kind of give out, and so it falls, right? Um, this is, I mean, this is, liability is less easy to, it's not as easy to point because it's it's an assembly thing. Like, that's just, I don't know whose fault that is, quite honestly. Um yeah. Of just yeah, I think it's it's human or mechanical error that resulted in thirteen deaths. They still don't have a bridge, and I watched a YouTube video where they were like recreating this, and people were watching the assembly of this bridge. It was a notorious bridge, so people were on the side watching, and like everybody saw it happen. Yeah, in the recreation, there was one of the employee workers. Um, who fell into the water he had a pipe and he fell into the water and in the recreation he was rescued from the water and he still had his pipe in his mouth (laughs) (laughs) i just like a little tidbit i possibly watched that part over a couple times i was like oh he didn't even lose a pipe (laughs) so yeah it was 13 deaths in the second tragedy so we're up to like 89 or something yeah it was 88 or 89 deaths I mean, okay, can I just say that if it's failed twice, maybe you go for a different design. Like, maybe you don't go for a cantilever. This one was really an accident because a year later, they succeeded. Yeah. So it's no, a- I think that's, that's more like a construction mishap, yeah. right? But the first one was just arrogance and, and incompetence. But this was like an actual mistake or and error. infuriating is that the first time around, nobody was found at fault, right? Nothing happened. There were no payouts. There was the victims died and nobody was held accountable. But for this accident, um, the St. Lawrence Bridge Company like said, oh my God, it's completely our fault. They apologized. They, you know, paid out all the victims, their families, yeah. and they tried to make amends where the same wasn't said for the first time around. I just think that if it's failed twice, maybe you go for a different design. Like maybe cantilever is just not your style, right? Yeah. I don't know. The ice bridge is working great. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> that frozen ice is going to stand the test of time. Oh my God. It's, I find it so tragic. Yeah. Um, so a year later, the same people were involved, the St. Lawrence Bridge Company, and it worked. And it was completed on the 20th of September, 1917. Um, then on December 3rd, 1919, the Quebec Bridge opened for rail traffic, almost two decades of construction. And the center span, okay, you were completely right. It's 549 meters. Yeah, I think overall, the whole bridge is 580, but yeah, 550 for that center part. Um, remains the longest cantilever bridge span in the world. And in 1919, the Prince of Wales officially opened the Quebec Bridge and unveiled plaques in honor of the engineers who had designed it and built it, but there was no mention of any of the men who died in either of the bridge collapses on the initial plaque at the time. They just like, let's pretend this never happened. This has since been- I I mean, and I'm not taking away from the fact that the people who died, like it was completely avoidable and whatever, but back in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was like common to lose workers' lives by building bridges. Like, I don't know how many people died in the, the Brooklyn Bridge construction, 
but it was like significant and it was not it was not like oh my god we made a mistake it was just like you fall in the water and like that's it like you're gone so that's a really I good think that what makes what makes this tragic though is that it could have been avoided because it was an engineering fault at least for the first crumble right the second one I mean, I'm, I don't know if you want to say confidently that it, it's just like that's how bridge construction is back then. But like the first one, the 60, 70 people who, who passed, yeah. like that could have been avoided just because just by double checking your calculations. I agree. I know there were people who died in the Brooklyn Bridge and all the bridges that were. I feel like those weren't like a single incident that caused everybody to no yeah and that's that's what I mean like it's just this is how bridge construction is right now and like if you fall into the water because you're the rope that's like keeping you up breaks hey like it's been it's been nice but like this is like an actual tragedy yeah (laughs) this is like an actual tragedy that um could have been avoided it's a feat everyone's proud of it it's 25 million dollars and 89 lives and two decades later that's what we have yeah, no, it has quite a legacy, but it also has quite a, a tragic story attached to it. What are the learning outcomes? What's, what, did, what did the engineering association take from this? Well, there was no engineering association before this, <laughs> right? Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> segue there, Denise. <laughs> <laughs> so before, from, from, again, the very little research that I did <laughs> is that, um, like, this guy, Cooper, right? The infamous Cooper, he was from New York, right? Is what you said? Yes. So he came up to Quebec to build this bridge, which at the time was totally fine, totally legal. Whereas now it's a lot more stringent on who's allowed to work on which projects, right? So it's regulated by province. And in Canada, if I were to be part of the Quebec order of engineers, I'm not allowed to work on a project in Ontario because they have their own ethical exams that you have to take for you to be able to like move on and be part of a project. So what came from this, in my understanding, is the formation of these professional orders in each province. So, so now only Quebec certified engineers can work on Quebec projects because they because the province instills this confidence in them that they've passed this ethical exam, that they're able to, to make the right judgment calls. Right. And that's where like the the ring that I have, which was given to me by the Quebec order, it's, hey, you've taken your ethical vow. Here's the ring as a reminder that you have a lot of responsibility with this ring. And then in a few years, come back to us, write this exam, and then we'll give you the, the go ahead to be an actual like a real engineer. Isn't there a rumor that that the, your ring is made from the steel nickel of the Quebec bridge fall? Yes, that's a very myth. That's the myth. It's on your right hand. It's on your writing hand. It's on the hand that you write with. Yeah. So you're like, so it's like touching the pen. Bangs, it like gets in the way and you bang it on your desk and as like a, oh, right. As I'm drawing on these, as I'm annotating these drawings and my pinky <laughs> is hitting the desk, I need to remember I have great responsibility. Wow. That's heavy. that's really heavy. It's very poetic. It, it, I, I do think so. I think it's very poetic. So the disaster, yeah, no, showed, the disaster showed what unquestionable power an engineer could have at the time in a project that was improperly supervised. Right. So once, you, once you're out of school, as I am, you are, you are considered a junior engineer. So you're a junior eng. And then once you get all these hours under your belt and you're ready to take the ethical exam and and the engineer that you worked under for four years is ready to like testify that you're a good, you're a good character, then you become eng, not junior eng. And then you're allowed to stamp drawings and like call the shots. This was an essential thing. I needed to be. It's just a way to control who has the power in what and to, and to make them liable. So if something were to happen, like you're held accountable for your actions. I'm sad. This makes me sad. I'm. It, it is, yeah. Do you want to be a building engineer? Do you do you want to build physical structures? Well, now I'm not sure, Denise. <laughs> this is quite a, and this is quite a an existential crisis that I'm having. <laughs> no, like my degree is is part structure, part energy, and I'm like slowly but surely inching my way towards energy. Whereas before, I was very much structure oriented. 
Whereas now I'm like my dissertation that was approved energy oriented. Mm -hmm. So like we're inching our way that way, but I still think that like, it's such a, like, it's such a fascinating to be able to make structures like that is such a fascinating feat. I think it's, it's like one of the coolest things and like most mechanical and coolest things to do. So essentially the bridge needs maintenance and because the bridge is now under, it's still technically the federal government, but it's owned now by CN, which is a crown corporation, which is very tricky in ownership, right? It's a private company, but it's funded almost entirely by the federal government. So it's really, really strange. And because of these weird situations, they don't know who should be paying for maintenance. Um, I think that maintenance is a severely underestimated cost and um, job when it comes to any sort of structure or any sort of building like you always have to maintain something like there's nothing that's just going to be constructed once and that's like that's it for the rest of time what i took issue with here is that it's corrosion and they're just painting it like like i get it there's paint that like is anti-corrosion and whatever but corrosion is kind of a bitch in the sense that like it comes because of air and because of water and that like oxidation reaction that happens but it's not going to go away until it's like actually dealt with you can't just slap a coat of paint on it and call it a day like it requires um due diligence and like maintenance so i don't really understand what's going on with the bridge but the other thing is that corrosion when it's not dealt with it it slowly but surely eats away at the metal right that's what it is and when it eats away at the metal at first it's harmless but the more it does the less strength is left in your metal right the less strength is left in your steel so your structural integrity can then be called into question so if you're not going to deal with the maintenance and you're not going to deal with the corrosion then your bridge is not going to last forever right like you need to deal with that and like no one seems to take ownership of it no one seems to like care enough to deal with it so i don't know i don't know what it wasn't clear to me what what's happening there not right as of right now nothing has happened but this is being brought up in elections like who's going to take responsibility and the federal government um is supposedly breaching a promise made during the 2015 election to act upon the maintenance of the bridge and they've so far failed to do so and but cn is like we're not going to pay more than 10 million because we think this is superficial modifications and like this doesn't paint cn in the greatest light like i'm sure they do a lot of great but this is not (laughs) they're shining they're not that's not their shining moment because it's not superficial like it's not just an aesthetic thing like corrosion will eventually eat away at your material and your metal and it will eventually weaken it and like it only the thing about corrosion is that it looks bad once it starts to actually look bad that's when it's like urgent you know like you it goes unnoticed for so long and then once that orange staining starts to happen then, then it's like, oh, we need to deal with this, you know, like we really need to, we need to take care. It's like, a, it's an issue on all bridges. Like the Mercier Bridge here in Montreal is like a disaster because of corrosion. That's why, it, that's why there's works on it every summer, literally every summer, there's construction on that bridge. And we can argue that Quebec has um, explicit problems with construction and, and we have more bridges and overpasses that, that buckle, as we learned earlier. I learned the word buckling. Um, that's, but th- that was not the problem here. The problem here was poor engineering and it was a learning, it was a learning curve for everybody involved. And now you have the ring and now you are here. Yes, we've come a long way. Thank you so much for talking to me about this. You're so welcome. This it's was a pleasure. pleasure. And it's like every conversation that we've ever had, ever, anyways, it's just recorded now. Yeah. <laughs> Call me in the afternoon, even